Hi, it's Paul Teak here with just a quick pre-podcast warning about the content of this week's show. We're going to be discussing the writing of erotic fiction, so we will be using several words of a sexual nature. We'll also be making references to pornography and the depiction of sexual scenes. There's nothing rude or offensive in there, it's a sensible discussion about the topic from an author's point of view. However, if you are easily offended, please skip this episode and join us again next week. Coming up then, a discussion about writing sex scenes in fiction and erotic fiction. If you're happy to proceed, enjoy this week's show. You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to episode number 25 of Self-Publishing Journeys for Monday the 22nd of August 2016. My guest today is Ashley Lister, a prolific writer of erotic fiction. Coincidentally, it's Ashley's birthday today, so if you're listening to this, Ashley, many happy returns of the day. Ashley has now written more than two dozen full-length erotic novels and over a hundred short stories. Aside from regularly blogging about writing erotica, Ashley also teaches creative writing. And he's hosted a creative writing workshop at Eroticon, the annual conference for sex bloggers and erotica writers. Ashley has written under several pseudonyms and has co-written books and appeared in numerous anthologies. He also writes poetry. He's the author of the book How to Write Erotic Fiction and has just published his first horror novel, Raven and Skull. When I chatted to Ashley, I started by asking him when he first got caught by the writing bug. My first novel was published in 97 or 98, so that means I've been writing professionally for about a decade. And before that, yeah, probably about a decade before that as well. Well, I mean, ever since I was small, as I, uh, my father had a typewriter, and I used to enjoy tapping away on the keys at it. Uh, and I hadn't thought about that for ages, but that's actually featuring in a story that I'm working on now, where I've got a character who's been put in isolation he's been taken away from internet and facebook and mobile phones he's been put in an isolated cottage and he's been given a silvery typewriter to work on sorry i had forgotten all about that as being one of my early influences there thanks for that Paul. i used to have a silvery typewriter i remember i bought it from preston in argos <laughs> in, 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 in the 90s but you know writing was a completely different process in those days wasn't it, it was i think it was so much harder uh, yeah, and thinking just about the whole typewriter thing, I've got a friend who's a poet who she was actually trying to get one of the typewriter interfaces for her computer so that she could experience a different way of writing because it does take different muscles to actually get the story out there. I um, started writing on typewriters like you, uh, uh, you know, banging the stories out bit by bit by bit. How much have you found that the process of, of composition for you has changed now we've got word processes? Do you think they've been the author's friend or the author's enemy best friend ever the fact that i can <laughs> copy and paste whole chunks of stuff that nothing should ever be lost i mean something got lost in a power cut the other morning when during the thunderstorm but other than oh and the other month i was um i'd done a day's worth of work on my phd and clicked to save and um the icloud that it's 
lurking on, hiccuped, and I lost a day's worth of work. But aside from occasional flaws like that and foibles like that, word processors are the best things that have ever happened to writers. We've got spell checks that are sitting there and underlining things in red when we've gone wrong. We've got the instantaneous immediacy of all the good things that writers need. The only drawback with them is that they're attached to the internet, so we keep looking at pictures of cats and <laughs> and all those other fun things that are out there, really. <laughs> you didn't get that on a Silver Reef typewriter, did you? No. <laughs> now, now, on your website, um, you're, you describe yourself as a prolific writer of erotic fiction. Primarily, that's why I've got you on today. But we are going to also talk about your creative writing teaching, uh, your new horror novel, and your poetry. So we, we will get to all of that, because there's so much to discuss with you. Well, but you and I... You are busy. I'm, I'm yeah. amazed at it, actually. You've done a lot of writing. It's very, very impressive. Thank you. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll start with the erotic fiction first. And, and, and I sat next to you at a conference recently, yes. and I, was, I, I knew that in the next book I wrote, I was going to have to write my first um, sex scene. And, I, and I've seen the old Alan Titchmarsh is getting the, the bad sex awards and things like that. And, and I, I, don't, I can't say that I read erotic fiction. So I, I didn't really know where to start why do you think we get so nervous about writing sex scenes what's the big deal about it um because it's sex uh there was um you didn't get to see what i was actually um discussing whilst um we were at the conference did you but one of the things i started off with was um, a george R. R. martin quote where he's put that um he can describe an act entering a human skull in great explicit detail and no one will blink twice at it but if he provides a similar description just as detailed of a penis entering a vagina he gets letters about it people swear at him and he thinks it's kind of frustrating it's madness because ultimately as he says in the history of the world penises entering vaginas have given a lot of people a lot of pleasure access entering schools not so much (laughs) and but we have that taboo and part of the reason why we wear clothes is because we've got these taboos and it's that same thing as soon as we start mentioning sex it's one of those things where people go oh perhaps i shouldn't be involved in this particular thing and they want to step away from it uh, so when we find it in a book um for the majority of us we sort of like step away thinking oh i shouldn't really be involved in this uh, well can i let you into a secret go on I'll let you into a secret uh, that I've really enjoyed uh, writing it in actual fact. It's it's great fun, isn't it? It is. It's liberating. And did you? what did you find um, yourself doing with this actual piece? Did you find yourself using an awful lot of metaphors within it, or was it very straightforward language that you were using there? Well, I've read... Uh, i tell you what I have been doing in preparation is I've downloaded a lot of free erotic fiction novels and I've, I've had a look at them and been reading them to get a feel for it. And, and I, right. I have a strong preference for things that don't get all fairy, airy-fairy with the language. And I like to call a spade a spade uh, when I do it. So exactly. I just describe what's happening. Exactly. Um, one of my students, uh, she wanted to do a dissertation on the story of O, and she was trying to look at the metaphors that were used um, within the novel. And as um, I'd said, yeah, go ahead, it sounded like an interesting project without even thinking about it. And then she got back to me a couple of weeks after she'd been researching it, saying there's conceptual metaphors within the story, there's various metaphors that are used describing it, but nothing in the actual sexual content. It is calling a spade a spade. And I think it 
needs to be when erotic fiction's been written. Because um, when we're in an intimate situation with somebody who we're intimate with, we develop euphemisms to talk round what we're actually discussing. Uh, there was a great scene. Oh, who was? It was Harry Enfield, one of his scenes, where uh, do you? Did you ever see the Mr. Chumley Warner sketches? I did, yes, they were very funny. Uh, there was a Mr. Chumley Warner one where Mr. Chumley Warner um, and a lady are in bed together and um, they're using train terminology to describe sex. Yes, I remember this. Uh, so, yeah, he sort of like said, uh, has the um, train arrived in Paddington? And she said, no, it's arrived in Bromley. Ouch. And... <laughs> We do that when we're talking with our partners. We put we put these put these phrases in there so that we're not calling a spade a spade because it is far too harsh sometimes. Um, so yeah, um, so with erotic fiction, we need to make it bold. We need to make it clear because if we start using um, "Has the train arrived in Paddington?" Yeah, your reader's not going to have a clue what the context of that is. Now, when you and I sat next to each other in Leicester, wasn't it? It was, that it was yeah. It was the same one, weekend one of... that Leicester had just been announced football champions of the world, I think it was. Oh, it was a great weekend to be in Leicester, wasn't it? Um, it was yes, brilliant. it was. <laughs> Unless you were on the trains, I think, probably. But uh, it was an exciting time to be in Leicester, I think, that weekend. Yes. And, and what I said to you, is, one of the things that was preoccupying me at that time was... Um, the words penis and vagina are what you would use in a science lesson, for instance. Yes. And, and, they, and, and they don't strike me as, they're not sexy words. It's not something that you would say in a, I don't feel in a, in a sexy context. Yet if you then start using, you know, other words, you're getting into slang and pot- potentially offensive words. And, and that's where I was a little bit stuck. You know, do you use the words penis and vagina or do you go more down the slang route when you're writing sex scenes? Um, how did you find you were going with the story that you were writing? Well, I, I've gone for, um, I tell you the biggest problem I've had is with, with, with somebody's bottom, what to call somebody's bottom. Uh, you know, if you call it a butt, a derriere, uh, an arse is what I would call it in conversation. Yep. And I've gone for buttocks, I think. You know, he ran his hand on, on buttocks, across buttocks or whatever. Um, but I am a bit stuck. choice. Is it? Oh, yeah, I like that. Buttocks, yes. You can't go wrong with buttocks. If you go for... Um, if you're writing for the American audience, Americans might sometimes refer to buttocks as a fanny. Um, obviously, a fanny is something different over here in the UK. Um, if we're referring to the actual cheeks, cheeks works well as well. If you sort of like got the reader focus that we're talking about, cheeks of the rear. Um, but yeah, it is finding that right balance. Sometimes I think length works when we're talking about penis. But I've um, spoken with one reader... In fact, she's a fellow author who actually said she despises the word length. She thinks it's far too Mills and Boone and doesn't say enough. But she's the only person I know who's actually got that particular downer on that word. I know I'm going to have to put an advisory on this podcast. So I, I must remember to do that. <laughs> I mean, yes. you're, you're, you're the first advisor I've had, by the way. So you, you get that um, privilege you know, of being the first advisory podcast. But uh, I do want to talk about this language. Um, yeah, I get that an awful lot, actually. I do, uh, <laughs> but this time it's because it's contextually appropriate. Yeah, whereas usually it's just because um, 
I'm a foul mouth git. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it's, it's important, isn't it, to get this language right? So, for instance, with with vagina, I might go something that feels more sexy, but I'm I'm concerned that it's more out of porn is something like pussy which feels more sexy but i don't know whether it's you know is it too offensive is it too pornographic then i've had one editor who refuses to take any submission that's actually got that word in it she just refuses to take she calls it the p word for some reason and yeah um she doesn't particularly care for that one um i've got other editors who think yeah pussy is fine um i do think uh that for my own particular style, I like softening the language so that things can't be taken out of context. If I've got if I've got to use any words that would come under the rubric of taboo language, usually I will put them into a character's mouth. So, yeah, characters might sound like, say, um, the P word, the C word, um, all these other various things, but within the dialogue, sorry, within the narrative itself, it will be his length, it will be her wetness, um, her sex. Yeah. I don't like that one. I don't like her sex. I've, I've, I've read that and I thought, oh, I don't like that one at all. Yeah, it's, this is one of the annoying things as well. Whichever words you pick, somebody's going to really dislike the, that particular word. And there's nothing that's more targeted towards spoiling the mood of the eroticism than somebody disliking the word that you've actually chosen. So like Mm. for the editor that I know, she might be reading your story thinking, yep, this is really good. I like the way it's developing. like the narrative. I found the word pussy there. I'm going to have to reject it straight away. Now, the other thing is we're two men talking about writing sex scenes. But when I write uh, books and and sex scenes, I want them to appeal to, to women as as well as men that's really quite important to me yeah. uh you know i don't want women to sort of feel oh, this is a man's sex scene it's not something that a woman can identify with do, do you do you write with that in mind with, with both genders in mind uh when i first started writing what i wanted to do was write for couples i'd always got the the image in my mind that um, the erotic fiction I was producing would be read by couples, that a couple would sort of like um, sit in bed and read passages to one another or, or maybe read a story on their own and say, oh, I really enjoyed this one. Do you want to have a read of it? That was always my intention. And I've had, I'm fortunate with my name being Ashley, that it's um, an ambiguous name. And a couple of people have actually written saying, are you a male or female, Ashley? Because I can't tell from what you've written. So I'm kind of pleased that things have worked out that way. But there are times when you can tell that it's a male writer or it's a female writer. I remember picking up one story where the author had put, um, and and then she went shopping because that's what women like to do. And no. I thought, it's a bloke that's put that. So. <laughs> But uh, yeah, there are. It's meant to be that um, men are more visual in what they describe, and women are more emotional and feeling in what they describe. But that's not something that I've ever noticed. I'm not saying that it's not there. It's just not something that I've perceived whilst I've been reading. Yeah, yeah, okay. It, it is. It is um, very interesting. What I, what I don't want anybody to feel is is that um you know they're reading a a a, a men's porn mag basically or so, yeah. you know because so much of pornography is geared to is geared to men and the man's point of view isn't it yes it is very anxious to avoid that in 
in my writing. Uh, and I, 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 I think I've got it right. I've got um, to ask a question. Well, mm. um, the purpose of the erotic scene that you've got in there, is it to develop character? Is it because it's a key plot point that um, two characters liaise in this way? Why was it there? Or was it just for titillation? No, no, it's, uh, it sparks um, in the first book, in the first sex scene, uh, there's a main sex scene in, in, in each of the books. So I'm on the second one now. Right. The, the sex scenes are actually pivotal to the action. Um, so the first one, it's it's the point at, from which all the action stems in, in, in the thriller. Um, it, it's a deception. It's a marital deception. Um, and, and it just messes everything up. And in, in, in the second one, it's, um, it is, again, it's good. I've just written it today in actual fact. But again, it's the spark that ignites the jealousy you know the passions the problems and all the relationship issues so no it's not it's not there just for titillation but actually i hope that when people read it it's going to be it is going to be quite titillating it's going to be exciting yeah it should be shouldn't it it should be something like it should be titillating it should be integral to the plot it should help develop and establish characters yeah it needs to because that's what sex does for all of us we have sex and it's part of our characters and yeah it establishes who we are and our roles in life and the other thing about the character as he develops is that his his worst mistakes are made through his bad choices, not not through sexual partner, but his bad decisions about sex. And, I, and that's something that will complete that will run through the books, um, you know, as it as it goes on. And it, hopefully, he'll learn from it eventually. Oh no, you don't want characters <laughs> learning things, do you? They want to carry on making bad choices. That's why we love them. Well, twenty books down the line, I'm thinking here. You know, let's not rush things. <laughs> I mean, you've actually got as far as to write a book about how to write sex. What's in that book? Um, yeah, it was kind of a fun one to work on that, and it came about because because I wanted to sort of like say this is one of the ways that erotica should be written. Um, it's not the definitive way that erotica should be written. I think the whole point of any writing experience is that we write and tell stories in ways that in ways that work for us and meet the needs that we've got but this one because i'd been um writing erotic for a long time because i've got some quite a few friends within the erotic community and i've been reviewing an awful lot of erotic books i realized i'd got enough material to be able to say this is one way of doing it, this is another way of doing it, this is the way this person's done it. And yeah, it was it was a fun one to work on that. I have your slides uh, on my desktop, actually. I, I made sure I downloaded them because I was unable to attend your event. You know when you split into two and you want to be at two and I promised somebody I'd go to his and I thought, right, I'm going to have to do that. And I really desperately wanted to see yours. I, I'd like them to spread the event out over two days, actually. Yeah, I've said that. A couple of conferences I've been to, there have been times where I've been thinking I want to go here and I want to go there and I can't go to this one because I'm delivering something like this. Ah, yes, it's maddening that. Yeah, it was about, I've got your slides, don't worry, I've gone through them with a, you know, a fine-tooth comb, and, uh, and I'm using them as my referral point, and I'm also going to be ordering your book as well. And um, I was checking out Eroticon as a result of doing research on you. That, that sounds fascinating. You've spoken at this event as well. Yeah, um, I think the last two or three years I've spoken at Eroticon. Um, yeah, what a brilliant resource it is. It's for people who write erotic fiction. It's for sex bloggers. And it's just such an interesting blend of things that go on there. Um, I, yeah, I love going down there. It's so much fun. Um, what did I do this year when I was there? 
I was talking about erotic poetry because I've got uh, an anthology of erotic poetry coming out this year um, to benefit a charity. So I was doing that. But it's a chance to meet other professionals who actually write within the industry. Um, it's a chance to talk with many of the people who blog about sexual relationships, sexual rights, sex toys, um, yeah, to discuss these things. Because ordinarily, um, if you get a chance to talk to people about writing sex or um, writing about any aspect of sex, there's always the giggling, oh yeah, isn't it all funny? But the chance to talk to people who do this professionally um, for a living, it's... It's quite an honour and it's quite interesting and quite useful. So there were demonstrations there on various aspects of the BDSM situations, um, which, if it's not something that you participate on a regular basis in, in that case you get to find out how does this work, what does this do, what does that do. I've got to tell you, you know, this stuff fascinates me. And, and, and I, my, my, my attitude is I just want to know. I just want to know this stuff. So I, I do find it endlessly fascinating. But from a writer's point of view, to me, writing a sex scene well is the same as me learning how to write a fight scene well. They're, they're just part of the author's toolkit. Exactly. And, and we can either write them appallingly, you know, or we can take the time and trouble to learn it and get it right. There's somebody, um, somebody was telling me about, I think it was an Agatha Christie book, where um, somebody points a revolver pistol at someone. And um, the person who was pointing out said, she's obviously not got a clue what, what sort of gun it is that she's talking about. There's no such thing as a revolver pistol here. Yeah. And you can tell the same thing when people are writing about sex scenes when they've got no idea what's actually going on there. Um, at Eroticon this year, somebody was giving a bondage demonstration, which was fascinating to watch. She got a couple of people who volunteered to be participants in this. Uh, um, she tied them up in various things. It was all discreet. There was nobody being unclothed. But the eroticism that was involved in it, the respect she had for the, the people who were there and the control that she was... You could see all that was going on and it would have fueled anybody's writing in a very real and vivid way. And the people who just want, like me, who are just writing the occasional sexy rather than erotica, are, are we welcome to events like erotica? Yeah, everybody, everybody's welcome at places like erotica, yeah, as long as you respect other people's boundaries. And yeah, that's all that we do as writers anyway. We just usually sit back and watch. And yeah, uh, yeah, you should go for it, Paul. You, should, you, you would love it there, yes. Yeah, one one of the things I was um, considering when I was going to write this first sex scene, and I, I hadn't actually started yet, one of the strategies I was thinking of was actually you probably could go online, you know, find uh, a video, a porn video, mm -hmm. and actually and write it. Just write what you see if, if you were stuck for ideas. Um, yes and no. Um, is that going to be realistic to the characters that you've got? Mm. And also... Um, Porn is so far removed from reality, isn't it? Um, yeah. It sets up such um, bizarre expectations. I mean, there's that gag online that sort of like says um, porn gives people unrealistic expectations about how quickly a plumber will arrive. Um, <laughs> yes. But also, uh, you've got people who are too glamorous. You've got um, women who have orgasms with just one touch of a finger. You've got blokes who have got 
perfect physiques and they've not got monkey toenails or they've not got um, embarrassing chest hair or things like that. So, yeah, it's, I don't know, I personally I find all those quirky things that we can put in there that make things more realistic would make a sex scene more vivid and more realistic and that way it makes it more entertaining for a reader. If you have, if you write about somebody who gets cramp halfway through what they're doing, it makes it believable because we've been in that situation. I'd, I'd like to explore that a little bit more. You were talking about, you know, embarrassing hair sprouting out of places where it shouldn't and things like that. I mean, yes. that, that's that's real life sexual relationships, isn't it? Think, you know, things going numb when they shouldn't because your arms in the wrong place and, and, and all of that stuff. So do you, you think that should be included in scenes? Yes, I do. I think things like that make things far more realistic. And we read erotic scenes, or personally, I enjoy reading erotic scenes for that sense of realism, for the fact that I'm exploring... If I watch porn, I'm seeing glossy people on screen who are just there, and they're just empty shells that are involved in an act of intimacy. If I'm reading erotica, I want to be inside the minds of those characters, and I think if the minds of those characters seem like they're as realistic as people I would meet on the street, then then that's what I want to be engaged with. I haven't asked you, actually, the obvious question that I should ask you, which is, what attracted you to writing erotica in the first place? Did, did you start out with erotica, or did you come to erotica? Um... <laughs> Great phrasing, that one. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. Sorry. Excuse my choice of words. Uh, uh, it started out, uh, I was enjoying writing an awful lot. Uh, I happened to have uh, an erotic magazine in the house, um, as you do. And uh, within the erotic magazine, they said they were looking for people who could write short stories. Um, they actually said, please send your short stories here. And... I thought that should be fairly easy to do and wrote a short story and they accepted it. And with the contributors copy that came from that one, um, there was an article in there with somebody saying that they were looking for novels, um, erotic novels. And uh, I thought, yeah, I can take a shot at that. And then my wife actually said, well, you're not writing for them. You can try writing for somebody who's actually going to pay you proper money. So I ended up uh, contacting Virgin Pub publishing who were one of the main publishers at the time of erotica and ended up writing for them i think quite a few novels for them well and and so you're alluding here then to traditional publication have you always been traditional publisher have you done any indie publishing um no i've done a handful of indie publishers published titles but um i started off with um yeah virgin and i think random house and um, HarperCollins, a couple of the other ones there. Uh, but yeah, that was for a lot of the erotica. And, and so you're, you said that you've got an editor there who had said no to the word uh, pussy, for instance. Yes. Are you, are, you kind of, are you restrained or constrained by that traditional publishing experience? You've got people saying, no, you can't do that. That's not part of our house style. Uh, to some extent, yeah, it does stay with you. Um, but I think as writers, or no, that's wrong. I was going to say as writers, we do this, and I'm tiring everybody with the same brush as me. Um, personally, as a writer, I like to remain conscious of my, 
my audience and think what's going to satisfy my audience's needs, what's going to make this story work best for the audience. And I think it would be arrogant of me to say, I like this word, and this word always works for me, so everybody's going to have that word. I like to pick up on feedback, and if people say, well, I'm not particularly keen on this word, in that case, I will try and avoid it. Like you said, the word sex, um, it doesn't work for you. And I have heard that criticism from a couple of other people. It might be one I try and drop from my vocabulary, but it's what will actually replace it. I'm not sure. And yeah, I think as a writer, it's trying to make sure that I meet an audience's needs as much as possible. You've, you said earlier that you've written under a number of names. Uh, you've probably got more than this, but I've got Amber Lee, Lee Ash, yep. Lizette Ashton, yep. Ashley Lister. Yep. What have I missed? Are there any more in there? Uh, I think, That's four. Uh, yeah, I think I wrote a couple of short stories. One under, we've got a dog called Drusilla. Um, so I, <laughs> um, I wrote under uh, the name of Drew Barker for one story, because uh, she barks Excellent. an awful lot. Uh, Excellent. Yeah, the dog's got four uh we named them after characters from buffy the vampire slayer <laughs> so we've got spike and drusilla uh and you mr giles that takes me back to uh to buffy buffy days uh, which whenever i'm teaching i always advocate students should watch buffy because the writing within buffy was superb it's still it's on netflix at the moment we were mentioning it before we started the interview uh if you if you're ever stuck for anything good to watch, nip back to the Buffies because they are still so powerful. Yeah, it's it's great. Uh, it was a great series. It ran for how many series? Was it seven? seven I think seven. seven yeah, yeah, great. Seven. It's great. They don't make it like that anymore. Then they could actually come back to it. Interestingly, I think they could easily pick it up at some point if they wanted to. Oh, don't you get me excited? <laughs> should do that. They should. Yeah, love Joss Whedon's writing. Um, yeah, sorry, I get so distracted, especially with him mentioning Buffy. Um, what the hell was I saying then? Well, I, I was going to ask you about um, Mills and Boone. I can't remember where I read it. Maybe I heard it in one of the interviews I was listening to of you, that you want to write a Mills and Boone. Now, with Mills and Boone, I mean, that really is an art form, isn't it? And, and that's more romantic fiction. What, what is the difference between erotic and romantic? Uh, really good question. And my PhD touches slightly on this as well because I'm trying to establish a whole idea of a relationship between genre and plot. Um, your main difference between, or to my mind, the main difference that I perceive between a romantic story and an erotic story is that the romantic story will have a happy ever after conclusion, whereas an erotic story has got a it-might-happen-again conclusion. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, uh, to my mind, that's the main difference between the two stories but i've always wanted to write for mills and boone just because because they are the best fantasies that are out there because they are because it's such an icon to have written for yeah absolutely and they've been going so strong for so many years and uh, they're a staple of libraries for instance aren't they and, and 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 all the old ladies read them don't they they're, they're, they're devils with them yeah they are and also part of the reason is because I've always, I always have to shout for the underdog whenever I can. And whenever I'm teaching a class, uh, people will sneer at Mills and Boone stories. And you usually find the people who sneer at them um, say, no, I'm not trying to write a Mills and Boone romance, are people who've never read one. And whenever I say, what's wrong with 
one. They say, well, I don't know. I'm not going to read one. Uh, to which I argue, if you've never read one, how can you dismiss it? How can you say anything negative about it? And, yeah, I just I love the fact that Mills and Boone get this bad press from people who've never, ever read them. Don't you think, though, this is the same as people uh, poo-pooing Fifty Shades of Grey, though, uh, and not having read it, and, and then poo-pooing the quality of the writing, when in actual fact what's been written is just an amazing phenomenon which has got a lot of people reading and a lot of people talking. We're a bit snobby about it, aren't we? Yeah, as soon as something's successful, we sort of like turn around and go, oh, well, it's only successful because of this, this and this. And, yeah, it's this whole snobbery. Fifty Shades of Grey, it's, is it the most successful book ever? Yeah, it's phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it's just great. I mean, congratulations to her. Who, who wouldn't want to write that book? Exactly, yeah. Uh, it's, it's done so well. It's allowed people to discuss. I mean, we would not be in a situation where we could have this conversation, I don't think, if it hadn't been for Fifty Shades of Grey. It's allowed people to talk openly about erotica and talk about the impact that it's had and how we can actually use it to further our writing. So, yeah, it's been a sensational book, really. And while we're talking about being pompous about things, I was really interested to hear, this is moving on to your poetry now, by the way. Right. I was listening to the interview that you recorded with Pop Art Radio UK, which I really enjoyed listening oh, yes. to, by the way. Oh, that was good, Lisa, yes, yeah. And what I enjoyed your conversation about poetry because um, you, you really hit a nerve with me there because I'm I'm one of these people who, you know, learnt poetry at school, thought thought everything had to rhyme, uh, found it intimidating, and actually you know hate poetry because of the experience I had in education. And then it was uh, such a breath of fresh air, you know, to hear you saying that poetry should be fun and stuffy and unpompous. It's got a real problem, poetry. Do, do not think because of the way schools teach it. I, I think. Yeah, because we're forced to uh, who's your favorite poet well do you know what this is embarrassing right i'll tell you the poet i enjoy most it would probably be somebody like pam Ayres. I, I knew like... you were going to say that i'm sorry i'm sorry no, because yeah. she's absolutely brilliant anything that's got rhymes in it you get people that poo poo them with oh rhyming poetry but rhymes are absolute fun and yeah we've got rhymes in shakespeare uh and people seem to think that it's acceptable for Shakespeare, it was all right for Wordsworth, but nowadays we can't have it. And there is an awful lot of snobbery about it. I work with a group called the Pub Poets, and we get together once a month, and we share poetry. We have open mic sessions, we occasionally bring in other poets from from all over, really. And we get to sit down and hear yeah, some tremendous poetry. Some of it's not rhyming and it can move you to tears. Some of it is rhyming and it can break your heart. Some of it can have you in stitches. Yeah, it's all about it's all about having fun with the words. And it's one and, of the things just, that... Sorry, go on, Paul. I was going to say, I mean, ultimately, everything we do with the written word is just communication. It's just a different... It should just be a different form of communication. One of the things that I teach, uh, I teach creative writing and... The first thing that we do in the higher education programs that I run is we look at poetry because I believe that poetry is the building block to good writing. That if you're able to construct a piece of poetry, in that case you've got the you've got the bricks that are needed to construct a solid short story or to construct a novel or a screenplay or anything larger that you want to write. But you must find it, is it more difficult to sell the poetry, say, than the erotic fiction? Uh, far more, yeah. Uh, 
Um, can't even give it away. Nobody. <laughs> um, very few people want to pay for poetry, uh, but it's what, what I'm lucky with with working with open mic poets is that we're able to share our stuff. We're able to, uh, yeah, we're able to participate and share the whole experience of poetry like that. Can I ask you about your creative writing teaching as well? Uh, what, yeah. what sort of ages are you teaching? Are you teaching uh, young, uh, older students? Uh, I'm teaching at the moment um, higher education. So students are usually past 18. Um, I was fortunate that for a while I was teaching an adult community learning course. So I was getting people who were past retirement age. And that was very, very interesting. We did a couple of modules on biography and there's some mature learners out there who've got some very interesting stories to tell but yeah uh, it's yeah uh, higher education is mature students really so yeah anybody over the age of 18 onwards luckily not children because uh, <laughs> yeah because i dropped the f-bomb too often really nah. and if you hear something that's good in the classroom and you want to say that was f brilliant you can't when it's like six and seven because you're frowned upon for being a bad influence yeah fair fair enough but are the, are they, the students that you're working with then have they already well, it's, it's not the wrong thing to say now put pen to paper have they already started tapping at their their word processes have they, have they generally started to write by the time you get them or are you as part of your role to inspire them to do that I'm lucky that I get a blend so you get some students who it's been their life's ambition to become a writer uh, and I'm one of the people who's lucky enough to be able to help them achieve that. Oh, I've got a barky dog there. Um, yeah, I'm one of the people who's um, lucky enough to be able to help achieve that. I do get some students who come in and um, they're actually kind of scared and intimidated. And it's, one of the, again, because we start off with poetry, they're in the fortunate position where we're able to say, look, put pen to paper write a poem write a haiku write a limerick see how creative you can be let's see how we can expand and develop on that and do they aspire to be traditionally published still or or does uh, you know self-publishing give them another hope another outlet for their work uh, we live in the most exciting times don't we the fact that self-publishing now is moving on so that it's attainable achievable and it's no longer got the stigma that self-publishing used to have it used to be that if you said self-publishing people would automatically assume vanity publishing and people would think oh, it's going to be of low poor quality whereas nowadays self-publishing doesn't have that issue i think a lot of people still do have the idea of yeah i'm going to write a novel i'm going to get a six-figure advance from this publisher and then Steven Spielberg's going to get in touch with me and he's going to make the film. But I think there are some people who are career writers who are thinking, yeah, I can self-publish here, I can self-publish there, I can go to this smaller publisher, yeah, and start to build up portfolios that way. What are you finding your students aspire to do? Are they are they still very much set on the traditional or, or is, is self-publishing a really uh, credible option for them now? I've got... Um, there's half a dozen students that I've worked with who've published novels um, through Amazon Kindle, um, who've self-published them. I've got a couple of students who've followed the more traditional publishing route. Who've um, so yeah, it would seem, looking back at it in from that perspective, that more students are going the self-publishing route. But I do know that. Um, 
one lady who who's uh, published a couple of novels, she self-published a couple of novels. She also regularly publishes uh, in a local newspaper, but that's mainly to increase her profile as a writer so that people are able to say, oh, I've read one of her short stories. I can go out and get one of her novels now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, effectively, that's building her author platform, isn't it? It is, and yeah. Introducing her to, to, to more uh, people. Um, you've also had some experience with, with older writers, and I, I've done a, a little bit of um, self-publishing teaching with older writers uh, and i find with older writers that they often dig a hole for themselves that they they don't feel like they've got anything to offer the world and that often the biggest battle with them is is confidence is just getting them to share the world what, what were your experiences with that age group uh, yeah confidence isn't it isn't it horrible that you sort of like there you've been chatting with someone and you've thought my goodness what a fascinating story that person has just told me what an interesting life they've lived and you say Right, you should really be getting that, putting pen to paper and telling people, and no one will be interested. I wouldn't be able to tell this story this way. I wouldn't be able to make it interesting. Yeah, confidence, it's its a horrible barrier to learning, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a crying shame. Uh, they don't seem to have, I mean, youngsters maybe have too much confidence nowadays, but, but the older generation just don't have enough, I find. And uh, if we could just get it somewhere in the middle, we'd probably be about right. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's that maddening thing. There's some people who've got, oh, I'm going to tell you this story. It's going to be absolutely great. And you get to the end of it and you think, wow, I wish you didn't have that much confidence. <laughs> and yeah, there's other people who you scratch scratch them and you think wow there's so much depth so much story underneath this person let's explore your first horror book um which is uh, congratulations on that by the way at the time Thank of recording you. this it's just been released and it's getting the good reviews in i see on your twitter feed so well done yeah, congratulations oh yeah i'm so pleased with it raven and skull yeah it's uh it's the whole notion of this and the whole title raven and skull comes and again, it harkens back to poetry. Um, comes from Edgar Allan Poe, really. He's well worth dipping into. He's um, written an essay on composition of poetry, um, as well as being the person who's given us um, what we perceive as the horror story nowadays. Um, he was one of the first authors, not the very first author, but one that we associate with um, mystery writing, with science fiction writing, with fantasy stories, any type of story that you're interested in, Edgar Allan Poe had written it back in the 1840s. Mm. Uh, his poem, The Raven, um, my goodness, what a brilliant piece of poetry that is. Uh, the rhythm within it is superb. Uh, it's a masterpiece of poetry, and the fact that he only got a few dollars in payment for it, it, um, it reminds you just how difficult and hard the life of a writer can be. So, yeah, um, Poe was obviously associated with Ravens, and, yeah, so I thought it would be an interesting idea to um, write something that had got a title of Raven and Skull. I think it was the title that came first. And, and it's a horror story that's set within an office, because have you ever worked in an office? I have, and it is a horror story. It is, in isn't office. it? I thought, what if you had all the horror stories, all the misery and dreadfulness and nastiness that you get when you're working in an office uh, made it into a fun horror story? So I've got a group of people who are sharing their stories of how horrible it is working in an office, and yeah, made it into a horror story. 
I'm, I'm conscious about what I say because I don't want to give away the ending and I don't want to give away key parts of the horror story because I'm one of those stupid people who can't actually tell a story without giving away the ending. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's funny, though, because I, I've been out of um, uh, corporate life for about five, five or six years, like six years this year. And um, th- these experiences do do carry forward into your writing because one of the things I write about a lot is evil HR departments <laughs> and, and, and the sinister machinations of the HR department, you know, saying one thing and doing another. And I think, my goodness, I was really scarred by this, by this corporate experience. But, you know, I'm guessing that it sounds from your book that this is what you're feeding from, this kind of – because they are mixed up places, aren't they? Do you know, I wrote a poem a while back um... – the poem was things that people never say because the whole notion was, was that um, as writers were meant to say things that people always say. This was a list of things that people never say. One of the lines in that was, don't the human resources department do a really worthwhile job? Um, <laughs> so it's not just me. It's then. not just you. No, what do they actually do? And why do they do? Why do we? Yeah, they're meant to employ people in You've seen the people that they employ. They're the morons that you work alongside. They employed you, for God's sake, so you can know how bad they are. Yeah, so well, I so I can identify with that. Now, why why did you then wait so long to, to do horror? I mean, I know you've done a lot of short stories, o- over a hundred short stories, which yeah, is incredible. Uh, Did, has horror ever fed into those? Uh, uh, as much as it does, uh, yeah, there have been something like vampire stories, where obviously uh, vampires have got that horrific element to them but this was one where i just kept putting it on a back burner and because i was getting commissions and writing and people saying can you write one for here and because i was trying to build my platform and sort of like right for there i'd avoided it but i'd always fancied writing a horror story there was something that always appealed to me i think it was because when i first left school uh i got a job and with my first wage packet i wanted to go out and buy a thick book uh which sounds incredibly facile and naive nowadays but i wanted to buy one of those thick novels that you saw people reading um usually people that you respect are clever people and and the thick book that i went out and bought my first wage packet was stephen king's dead zone Mm, oh, I love that book. Oh, brilliant, wasn't it? I mean, the film was oh, good as well. It was one of those yeah. Stephen King films that are actually good. I think there's The Green Mile, which is a good one, Shawshank yes. Redemption and The Shining. Yeah. And after that, we're sort of like on dodgy ground with Stephen King films. But Absolutely. Dead Zone's great, isn't Dead it? Dead Zone, yeah. Um, wonderful. It's my uh, favourite, actually, Dead Zone. Yeah, it's... Uh, they should do one of The Stand. I think there's meant to be a film coming out next year of The Stand. Oh, It is an okay one, but I don't know. It's not quite got the impact. But yeah, after reading The Dead Zone, I wanted to write a horror novel, uh, but never committed the time to it. And then and then just thought, yeah, it's about time, actually. Get your finger out and actually write it. And um, the idea for raven and skull the first story that's in there i was i give my mother a lift home one evening and just as i was parking outside the house she said uh, i'm right to touch you seriously about something and i said yeah go on what's wrong and she said i've been knitting and every time i actually do some knitting somebody dies she said, do you think there's any chance that my knitting needles might be cursed? And I thought, she's as mental as biscuits here. Uh, and I said, 
should I be checking you into a home somewhere? Have you got some sort of problem? Uh, and she had a go at me. So I showed her, no, knitting needles aren't cursed because there's no such thing as cursed knitting needles. And then I thought, what if there was? Wouldn't that be a great idea for somebody in a horror story, somebody who does knitting? And, and yeah, so the whole thing built from that idea. I like that. I hope you've apologised to your mum now. You've written a, put it into a book. Uh, at the lodge party the other week, I... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I told that exact story whilst she was there. And, uh, yeah, she's not spoken to me since, but uh, <laughs> she, she can write me out of the will once, can't she? Yeah. <laughs> oh, dearie me. Yeah, so, so are you going to do more horror then? Have you got a taste for it now? I have, yeah. That's what I'm working on at the moment. I'm working on a, a second horror story idea. I've got this idea about a horror writer. Uh, he's working away on that Silver Reed typewriter I mentioned Um mm. And yeah, he's he's actually in a very privileged position at the moment because he's got writer's block, but um, he goes to bed, wakes up at ten past three in the morning, goes downstairs, sits in front of this silvery typewriter, and then falls asleep. And when he wakes up, there's another fifteen pages written. Ooh, it's like Elves of the Shoemaker, isn't it? Yeah. Does that sound like bliss to you that you can write it in your sleep? Yeah, it does. That sounds great to me. Yeah. Um, have a bit yeah, of that. He's, he's not liking the way the story's developing, though. Oh, right. Oh, it sounds good. It's good. I like this. Yeah. It sounds great. Yeah. But I'm not sure how it's going to end yet. I'm, I'm getting close to the end of the moment. Um, yeah, it's kind of fun. And, yeah, spooky horror writing. Now, you just said something interesting there. You said, I'm not sure how it's going to end just yet. So you've, how many, I mean, you've written so much stuff, for goodness sake. It puts everybody to shame. So you sound like you're a pantser, though, are you? Did you make it up as you go along? I shouldn't be a pantser. My PhD is actually in how there's this structure to stories, how it's um, a three-part structure to every story, how there's only five particular plots. Each one is tied to its own genre. And... And, yeah, that's how my PhD is saying things are. My whole mindset is I won't let myself know how things are. I made the mistake once of um, of planning out a whole synopsis for a novel and then couldn't be bothered finishing it because I knew how it was going to end. And, yeah, I'd got no interest in actually seeing the conclusion written out. So I need to have something that keeps my motivation and my interest there. I'm so pleased you said that because, uh, you know, I've, tr- I've tried this. And if I know the story already, I'm just bored and can't be bothered to write it. Whereas yeah. if writing a story is a process of discovery for me, then I'm as excited. I mean, I've, I've written a ridiculous number of words today. I think I've written about 8,500 words today. Wow. Because, I'm, yeah, I, I write, I write uh, fast than a lot. But um, uh, I'm so into the story. Frankly, I could have, I could have written all day today. <laughs> but, but if I don't get that buzz... Yeah. Um, I, you know, there's nothing there for me. There's no, I don't get any enjoyment out of it. Then you've got a day job. You're back at the office with the HR department, as, as far as I can see. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, so, no, I need to have that. I need to not know. I need to be there thinking, oh, how is this going to pan out? And sometimes you'll think, well, I need to have subtle out. Another character needs to have appeared five chapters back, and you've got to go and put a note and go five chapters back and have that character appear there. So, yeah, I've, there might be some reverse editing later on in the process but for that first draft i need to i need to be as surprised as the reader's going to be surprised yeah yeah i think that's exactly it isn't it you want to share that sense of <gasps> when it when it happens i like that 
gasp when 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 you put something in you come up with something yeah and when uh, two connections actually happen when you sort of like started this thread here and that thread here and those two connections come later on down the line part of me's thinking that was planned and part of me's thinking wow i didn't see that coming at all yeah isn't it nice when it happens though yeah it is it's lovely that part yeah. how, how do you write then when, i mean you you were just um, saying about you know you were gasping at my eight and a half thousand words which feels about i try to get about five thousand done at a session but i have to squeeze it around a day job as well and that's just how i can get the writing done well how do you write how, how many words are you doing when you're sitting down or, or do you just see what comes out um i on a good day, I like to get about 2,000 words a day. Yesterday, I managed to get 3,000. I was very pleased with that. Sometimes when I'm teaching, um, there's not time for any writing, and and that can get kind of frustrating when you're thinking, I'm not able to get on with anything. Yeah, it can get maddening, that part. And how how long will it take you then to, to to write a book, roughly, in terms of your, you know, the shape of a year and your writing? Uh, I I used to be able to get four a year out. Um, I used to be kind of pleased with that. But now that I've started teaching and I'm working on my PhD, uh, I'm managing to get one, maybe two out in a year. Yeah, but that, I mean that's a pretty good rate. You you were writing when you were getting four out a year. You're writing at an indie author rate. That's not a typical traditional writing rate uh yeah it was um but that was all that i was doing i was sort of like focused on the writing i was full-time writing um didn't have any job um well <laughs> sorry no didn't work just wrote for a living yeah mm. because it's that easy um no didn't have any traditional regular employment i was just writing and could you make a living with it it was doing okay for me, but I I was wanting to do more. I wanted to get into teaching. I wanted to pursue education and do something academic as well. So what are your plans now? You've, you've just written a tremendous amount. It's amazing. If you go and look at Ashley Amazon, it's just incredible. There's just so much on your website. There's just so much stuff there. Um, so congratulations on that. Where, where, obviously, you're writing another horror. What, what are your plans? Do you have a game plan for this, or do you just let it emerge? Uh, I want to do a couple more horror stories. Uh, when the PhD's finished, uh, the PhD's looking at short fiction, and I'm wanting to do something more with short fiction, I think, ultimately. Um, we're doing erotica, and we're doing the horror. I think I need to maybe look at mysteries, and I maybe need to look at doing something in a full-length romance and an adventure story as well so that i've covered all five of the genres well there's a lot there a lot to keep you going will you keep writing the short stories as well yeah i think they could just like poetry i think short stories keep you on edge and sometimes you'll know this yourself from your writing there's some stories where you think yeah this can make its way into a nice long novel but there are other stories where it's compact and it just needs to be a short story it's not got the it's not got the legs to be a full-length novel but it still needs to be written I'm really grateful for your time today. I, I wonder if you can tell us where we can find out more about you online. Uh, AshleyLister.co.uk. Um, I'm also tweeting. I'm also uh, on Facebook. Yeah, find me. I befriend people regularly. And, yeah, and, and I plow out so much rubbish through Facebook. Yeah, it would be nice to know somebody was reading it. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. I had to talk to you when we met in Leicester. Thanks ever so much. Thank you.
Thank you. Pleasure talking with you, Paul. Thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.